Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, sorry for my cold, but um, hopefully we'll have a, some strong Torahs here. So, so we're heading into the months of Tammuz and Av, and the fixing of Tammuz is the eyes, and the fixing of Av is the ears. So we have this amazing sort of like um, interplay, sensory speaking, between your sight and your, and your hearing. Interestingly, every month also has a tribe in addition to a level of fixing. And the tribe of uh, Tammuz, which is seeing, is Ruvain. And Ruvain means, it comes from the root to see. And, and Shimon is for Ab. So Shimon is like Shema. Shimon means to hear. So it makes sense. It connects with the, the, the tribes as well. Um, it also makes sense because Tammuz is, the beginning of Tammuz is when the spies left to explore the land, and of course that all culminates in Av. And it's a big question of what did the spies actually do wrong? So for those of you not familiar with this chapter in Jewish history, this was as epic or in the consequence of it, of it or actually even more epic than the sin of the golden calf. Because after the sin of the golden calf, we make the, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and we're back on track for heading into Israel, led by Moshe Rabbeinu. But after the sin of the spies, everything goes south, so to speak. The whole generation is sentenced to die out in the desert. There's this 40-year decree of wandering, and Moshe doesn't lead them into the land of Israel anymore. So in terms of turning points, in terms of history, the sin of the spies is actually even more consequential, amazingly, you know, unexpectedly, than, than the sin of the golden calf. So everybody wants to know, what did the spies do wrong? <clears throat> so we're going to get back to the eyes and the ears in a second, because it's a question, did they sin with their eyes? Uh, the people, they sin with their ears, because when the spies report back their, their bad report about Israel, the people listen to, to the report. So again, we're getting back to the eyes and the ears in, a, in an interesting way. Um, but I just want to give you uh, a few quick gems um, from Reb Shlomo on the spies, things that I heard him say and have stayed with me ever since. And they're just, I think, just kind of like landmark thoughts. So one of them is, I would classify as maybe the scariest Torah that I ever heard in my life, which is that he, uh, Reb Shlomo said in the name of the Zohar that the spies actually saw rivers of blood heading out of Israel. And what they saw was every bad event that was ever going to happen to the Jewish people. But what they didn't see was that it was all going to be because of them. Which is like, like you know, like we should just go home and nap after that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's sort of like, how do you recover from a teaching like that? It's like, another thing that he said, Rip Shlomo said that, and I always remember this phraseology because it's so unique. He said that the spies looked into the heavenly bank account of the Jewish people and that they saw that we didn't have enough merit to deserve the land. Um, but then Rib Shlomo says that, but what they, but they didn't realize is that Hashem wanted to give it to us as a gift. And I think this is a very important teaching because, you know, in life many times we say, I'm not worthy. And, you know, the reality may be that we aren't worthy. However, that doesn't mean that Hashem doesn't want to give it to us still as a gift. 
So we have to stay in, in tune with that. The, the third teaching that I want to share from Reb Shlomo about the spies is that after the people listened, right, to the bad report, they, they realized that they had done the wrong thing. And they stayed up all night crying. It says in the Chumash that they stayed up all night crying. And Reb Shlomo says that be, basically that tears are a mikvah for the eyes. That basically, that this was, they were trying to, like if, this, if the spies sin with their eyes by only seeing the superficiality of the land, according to one account anyway, then this was a way of, of purifying their eyes, these tears. So this concept that tears are a mikvah for the eyes, I think is just very, very beautiful, very poetic, very deep, and very true, of course. Um, okay, so so let's get back to this 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 idea. You see, because because we we Hashem has deliberately constructed the world where He gives us free choice, and we have to be very mindful. What kind of eyes are we looking at the world with? You know, and this is, this is a choice that, that we get to make. How are you seeing the world? Like Reb Shlomo would say so beautifully, he would talk about seeing the world with Shabbos eyes. Right? Are you seeing the world with Shabbos eyes? And I always thought that that's a, like a nice kavana. Like a lot of people, when by Havdalah, they, they put out the, the candle with the wine, and then you take your pinkies and you, you dip your pinkies into the wine that sort of like consume the flame of Shabbos, right? And then you put it into your eyes. And I always thought that it's a nice kavanah to say, oh, you know, this is a, a, a blessing that I should see the world with Shabbos eyes. You know? And my son, I'll just tell you one more thing. People also take the, the drops of wine, they put it in their pockets. One of my favorite all-time Torahs, my, my, my five-year-old son said it, Moshe said it. He said, he said, the reason why we put the, the wine in our pockets is so that we can carry Shabbos with us all week. Right? Love that Torah. So, okay. So now I want to I wanna go, go deeper. So, so we have, when we talk about how are we seeing the world, we have... The, the, the central moment for resetting, for calibrating, if you will, are our faculties of perception. We have a, a twice-daily moment when we do that, and that's when we say Shema Yisrael. And we're really, we really are, just to use that phrase again, calibrating, fine-tuning our sensory perceptions in terms of how are we seeing the world. Now, there's something very interesting about the way Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad is written in the Torah. The, the, the last letter of Shema is the letter Ayin. We're going to talk about what Ayin means in a moment. Ayin is interesting because Ayin is not just a letter in the Torah, it's actually a word, and the word means I. Okay, E-Y-E. And there's a large Ayin at the end of the word Shema. Shim, Shin, Mem, large Ayin. Okay, and 
And so, before we go into Shema, I just want to and and examine this large ayin and 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 explain um, in in better detail how actually saying the Shema calibrates our perception of the world. Um, let me just say the the Rashi on Shema because I think it's 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 sort of like it's it's a surprising Rashi, in, in my opinion, because what is Shema saying? Shema everybody knows is the the one sentence sort of summary of all of Jewish thought. Basically it means, you know, that God is one. We're talking about the oneness of God. And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of what it all boils down to. Um, so you might think that, that, uh, that Rashi would give sort of a, a, a more philosophical explanation about Shema. But he sees it as this historical timeline. And what he says is, is that Shema Yisrael... Here, here, Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem is our God. So, so on that, he's, Rashi says, right now, in this stage of history, Hashem is our God. And then what's the rest of the verse? Hashem Echad, Hashem is one. But in the future, everyone will recognize the oneness of God. So, so, so here you have in Shema a whole history and timeline of the progression, the spiritual evolution that the world is heading toward. Right now, God is our God. However, in the future, God will be recognized as one. Everyone will understand his oneness. That Hashem is one. That it's only Hashem. That that's the only thing that truly exists. Okay. So, now let's get back into Shema and talk about how this calibrates our ability to to really understand God's oneness. So, so, interestingly, when you say Shema, you're supposed to close your eyes. You actually cover your eyes and you close your eyes. And the halacha is, Jewish law states, that you have to say Shema loud enough that you yourself can hear it. So, so interestingly, we're back to this dynamic between the eyes and the ears again. Because you're closing your eyes and you have to say it so that you can hear it. So I think in contemporary, you know, I don't know if it's psychology or whatever it is, they, would, they, they might refer to this as a positive feedback loop. And, and why are we closing our eyes though? Right? So this is, this is very interesting. So I heard this from Rabbi Blech. And he said that basically the, the concept of we, we want to recognize that the totality of existence exists within God. As I heard um, uh, Gedaya Gerfein say many years ago, it was a life-changing teaching for me. He says, what's the difference between someone who believes in many gods and someone who believes in one God? So he says, someone who believes in many gods says, God is in the sun, God is in the trees, God is in the ocean, right? But someone who believes in one God says the entire world is inside God, right? So that's like, wow, okay. So God saturates all of, his, all of existence. So, so Rabbi Black says that when you close your eyes for the declaration of Shema, of the oneness of God, what you're doing is you're you're basically canceling out or you're shutting out this superficial layer of reality 
in order to tap into the deeper level of reality, the oneness that informs all of creation. So, and so, when we talk about oneness, that's like, that's like the Aleph, right? That's like the Aleph. Aleph is one. So, so when, we, when we shut our eyes, we're just sort of like probing past just this superficial layer of reality, and we're tapping into the oneness of God that informs all of creation. And then we're speaking out that testimony so that we ourselves hear our own words, which positively reinforces this concept of the oneness of God. So that's what I mean when I say that the that saying Shema is you're fine-tuning, you're calibrating your understanding of the world that we live in. Because around us, what we really have, what we're really starting trying to counteract is the, the perception of our eyes, right? Now remember, what did we say? We said that, that, that the letter ayin, there's a big ayin at, at, after, you know, at the end of the word shema, but the letter ayin stands for, is a word in Hebrew which means eye, right? So in, in, a, in a way, we have to really manage our eyes. And isn't it interesting that sort of like the antidote to your eyes is, is the Shema, so to speak. Because you're closing your eyes and you're tapping into the oneness of God and not being fooled by the superficial perception of the eyes, which tells you that there are many, many powers all over the place. Okay, so, so I want to go deeper with this thought. And, and something that I, I realized that I thought was really, I mean, to me it sort of blew my mind. So let's get back to this large letter ayin, okay? So I learned from Rabbi Wolfson, Shlita, in the name of the Chasim Sofer, that any time you see a large letter in the Torah, that it's actually four times the gematria of what the normal letter would be. So I thought to myself, what is, what's going on with this large letter ayin? This big I, E-Y-E, right? What's going on with this big ayin? Not only that, but, but keep in mind that there's a whole literature in the Sifrei Kodesh, in the Holy uh, Torah books, about the difference or the distinction between ayins and alephs. You see, because on one end of the spectrum you have the ayin, and on the other end of the spectrum you have the letter aleph. Why are they so opposite? Because ayin is the number 70 in Gematria, and when we talk about all the different nations, we talk about there being 70 nations. So in other words, that's this illusion again that there are multiple different independent powers in the world, which is not the case. But, but that's what our eye can perceive, right? Our eye, which is ayin, can perceive that there's 70 nations all with independent powers, right? So that's on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, and interestingly, both of these letters are silent letters, is the letter aleph. And Aleph testifies, Aleph is one, it's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph testifies to the oneness of God. Now, now, a lot of times you see that the Hasidic masters and even, you know, the, the Kabbalists are trying to turn ions into Alephs. <laughs> because, think about it, Ayin is stands for this illusion of many powers, 
and turning it into an Aleph is like restoring it back to its root, back to the reality that there's only one power which is God. In fact, something very interesting, I heard in the name of the Ari that when we talk about eating from the Eitz, the Eitz Hadas, the tree of knowledge, right? That Eitz is spelled Ayin Tzadi. Okay? And I heard in his name, an, an amazing teaching, he said that what we want to do is change the Ayin of Eitz back into an Aleph. Or into an Aleph. Now, if it's Aleph, because what happened once we ate from the tree of knowledge? All of a sudden, this world became very material around us. Our eyes were opened to materiality. And we couldn't really see the oneness of God so clearly anymore. But what happens when that ayin turns back into aleph, right, or turns into an aleph? Then the gematria of eights is aleph is one and sadi is 90. It adds up to 91. And that gets us back to this classic construct, 91, which is the yud Vavke and aleph dalad nun and yud, which are two names of God which symbolize heaven and earth coming together again. In other words, what happens is when we eat from the tree of knowledge, this concept of heaven and earth split. Where's heaven? Is there a heaven? I don't know about heaven, right? I see earth, right? But what happens when the ayin turns into an aleph? Then all of a sudden, eights adds up to 91, and now we have heaven and earth back together again. Right, so we have the unity of the perception of God's oneness has been restored when we turn the ayin back into an aleph. Okay, so now let's go back to the big ayin of Shema. So, like, you know, there are ayins and there are ayins. So this is the big ayin. This is it. This is where it is. Wouldn't it be great if we could turn that into an aleph? <laughs> that would be awesome, right? Yes. So let's see... Let's, let's see what happens, okay? So, so, what did we say? We said in the name of Rav Wolfson, who brings the Chasim Sofer, that any big letter is in the Torah is four times its normal gematria. So, ayin is 70. So, since it's the big ayin, 70 times 4 is 280. Now, 280 is a big number in, in the Sifre Kodesh, in the, in the holy books. Because we have something, a very interesting construct in the Hebrew alphabet, which is we have five final letters, right? And these five final letters are very mysterious in their own ways. There's a whole literature, a whole Torah study about what these final letters represent. But basically, they represent din or judgment. Because what happens when they come at the end of a word? The word's over. <laughs> That's, that, would be, that would be a working definition of judgment, right? <laughs> Done. Okay, so what is 280 then, which is what the large ayin would equal numerically? 280 is the sum of all of the final letters added up. So now we see that this ayin, which we've been talking about, means the I, or the 70 nations, or this illusion that there are many powers in this world, all of a sudden you see that the large ion is now equal to all of the final letters combined, which is this concept of judgment, right? So what are we going to do with that? But then I was thinking about it, and there's another system of gematria called misparkutten, which is that you keep adding up 
the lead, the numbers in a in numerically till you're down to one digit. So let's do that with 280. 2 plus 8 plus 0 is 1, 0, 0, maybe there's one more 0, I'm not sure. And then 1 plus all those zeros is 1. So 280, if you boil down 280 to a single digit, it becomes an aleph. <laughs> So all of the final letters, this giant ayin, becomes an aleph. So what's the idea? The, the idea is that one of the primary um, jobs of, of, of rebbe's, of, of spiritual leaders, is to take judgment and to return it back to its root in sweetness, right? So what is the letter Aleph? Here we've said, okay, so now we've got an ayin, which is a big ayin, which means it's four times its value. So ayin is 70 times four is 280. Two plus eight plus zero equals one. It becomes an Aleph. But what is an Aleph? An Aleph is actually three letters. It's two yuds and a vav, which adds up to 26, which is the yudke vavke, which is the name of God's this is God's most merciful name, Rachamim. It's pure mercy. So contained with the Aleph, within the Aleph, is the most merciful expression of Hashem. So now what have we done? <coughs> We've taken the big ayin, which equals 280, which is all of the final letters, which stands for judgment, and we boiled it down to, back to the Aleph, which is the Yudkevavke, and return this giant segment of judgment into sweetness. So, so this is this is what we do when we say Shema. We close our eyes. We concentrate on the oneness of God, right, which can be expressed as an aleph. And we speak out that aleph, and we knock off the ayin. <laughs> we put that aleph into our ear, right? And we, and, we, and we see that oneness. Now, I want to go, I want to go further. What, one time, we also have a letter Dalit. And the last letter of the Shema is a large letter Dalit. So there are two enlarged letters. So Echad ends with a big Dalit. And when a person says uh, Shema, they're supposed to really enunciate that Dalit. You're supposed to say Echad, right? And it's actually one of the most way out teachings, in my opinion, in the, in the Gemara, because because why are we so concerned that it should be echad? Because a dalit looks very much like a resh. Like it just has like a little extra corner, a dalit. Right? Otherwise it would be like a, a resh. So that would change the definition of echad to achar, which means God is something other. Right? Which is, would be the exact opposite of what we're trying to say. 
literally the exact opposite of what we're trying to say. And there's a Gemara, I can't quote the names, I'm sorry, that, and there was a scribe in the, in the Gemara, in the Talmud, who says that one of his biggest fears is that a fly should land on the corner of the letter Dalid of Shema, and while the ink is still wet, lift up that drop of ink and turn the Echad into Achar, the oneness of God into something other. Now, flies are really interesting because flies have dozens of eyes. <laughs> they're all about eyes. If you look it up, it's like they're like, and, and in fact, the Yetzahara, the evil inclination, is often associated with a fly because they have so many eyes. So, so, so this is, again, this is, you have to just kind of take a moment um, no matter how fast the uh, no matter how fast the service that you're in is going when you say Shema and you just have to allow yourself to think the only power in the entire world is God all that exists is God and then that that will reset your soul and allow you to function in this very very challenging world So let's just wrap it all up with, um, with what I think is a very inspiring teaching. And, and I, I love this verse because I'll read it to you. It, it seems completely um, uneventful, like completely anonymous. And then, but when you realize, kind of like in a moment after we contextualize it, you'll go, wow, this is an amazing thing. So here's the, here's the verse. It's uh, um, chapter 14, verse 25 in, in Bamidbar in Numbers. The Amalekite and the Canaanite dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and journey toward the wilderness in the direction of the Sea of Reeds. So, okay, so new. What's, what's the big deal? So the big deal is that this is coming right after um, the, 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 the rebellion of the Jewish people, triggered by the, 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 the spies that are not wanting to go into the land of Israel. And by the way, why was there such a harsh reaction from God? So I heard this from my friend Michael Globerman, and I, it's, it's always stayed with me. Why was this such a deal breaker? Like, you don't see that the whole generation has to die out after the sin of the golden calf, and yet you see it here. Why was that such a deal breaker? Because for us to think that we're going into this land just to be wiped out by, by these this huge conquering formidable army suggests that God is bad and and God says back to us you think I'm bad you think the whole point of all of this was for me to lead you into the land of Israel for you to get wiped out that's what you think that that's a deal breaker that's a that's that that, that's such a fundal, fundamental misconception of what God is up to. I can't do business with this generation. So you, you hear it. It wasn't just a, a mistake. It was, it was we at that point showed our hand and showed a perception of what we thought God was about. And it was so off. It was so off kilter. So, so, so we refused to journey in the direction toward Israel. And, and, and Moshe 
pleads that, that God should forgive us and, and, and allow the generation to continue to live or the Jewish people to live. And then you have this verse. The Amalekite and the Canaanite dwell in the valley. Here's the key words. Tomorrow turn and journey toward the wilderness in the direction of the Sea of Reeds. So in other words, we had just refused to head in the proper direction. And God gives us this amazing new chance to serve Him in the exact category that we weren't serving Him a moment before. In other words, to turn and travel in the direction that He's commanding. Do you hear? Tomorrow, turn and travel toward the wilderness in the direction of the Sea of Reeds. So, okay, listen, all of us, day by day, everything is day by day. We have good days, we have bad days, we, we perform amazingly, we blow it the next day. This is our lives, right? So God says, okay, so that's today. Tomorrow, turn in this direction. Turn and travel in this direction. You've got another chance in the very area that you fell, traveling, in the very area that you fell, you have another chance tomorrow, I'm telling you, go in this direction. And that's, that's our lives. That's our lives. This is, this is an amazing thing. God is constantly giving us new chances, new chances. And I just want to maybe just darshan the, the, the last part of that verse. Journey toward the wilderness. You know, the wilderness. To, in other words, make yourself like a desert. You know what? You made yourself the final authority. You know what? Make yourself small. Make yourself like the wilderness. And then journey in the direction of the Sea of Reeds. What was the Sea of Reeds? That's where the greatest miracle, the greatest aspect of God saving us became manifest. When God saved us from all of our attacking enemies and split the sea and drowned our enemies. Right? So journey toward the Sea of Reeds. In other words, you've got another chance. You know what? Just take your ego, make it a little bit like a wilderness for a moment, and head in the direction, meaning remember who I am and how I'm there to save you and how I've done miraculous things for you, you know, and continue to do. Now for some questions and answers. So you want to know about the guy getting stoned for gathering sticks. This is one of the, this is one of the most beautiful teachings, I think, that I know. And when I first heard it, I thought it was like a, a Torah from like San Francisco from the 1960s. And I found out years later that it was said by Rabbi Akiva. <laughs> so, even better. So what's, what is it that after the sin of the spies and the 40 years of wandering and the generation dying out, there was a question whether the Jews were still obligated to keep Shabbos or to keep the Torah. And so according to Rabbi Akiva, this person loved Shabbos, the person who gathered sticks on Shabbos and was then received a, a capital punishment for, for having broken Shabbos publicly, right? So his desire was actually, because he loved Shabbos so much, to show by breaking it, and the fact that he was punished for breaking it, to show that the Jewish people were still obligated in the mitzvah of Shabbos. So do, 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 you, hear? do, do you hear what's being said here? He loved Shabbos so much he created a situation where he actually died for Shabbos to teach everybody that we still had Shabbos, even after the sin of the spies. He was a martyr. 
yeah, I guess, yeah. He did it. He did it totally out of love for God and love for Shabbos. A very surprising dynamic. You don't really see that in the Torah. I mean, you don't see an an instance like that. So, was he the father of the daughters? Yeah, there's an opinion that he was the father of, of uh, Slavchad's daughters. Yeah. <laughs> that he would be Slavkad, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, so, um, yeah, so then you say, well, you know, his daughters were so holy, but you see the father was so holy, you know, it's, it it's connects. Two, two things, one, yeah. when you're talking about <clears throat> closing your eyes and hearing it, I was just thinking in terms of yes. um, finding your Bashir, yeah. you know, when people can sometimes see and it's superficial yes. and they see the person and they think, oh, I'm not even going to bother with this person. Yes. And they've never heard what they have to say. That's uh, absolutely. I, I always thought that I would be someone that I was in the category of people when I see the person, I'll know. And I saw the person and I didn't know. So I really think that I really think that that's um, I'm biased because it's me, but I think that's a good argument that you don't know necessarily and that, that it's a, a, an unreal expectation. And while we're on the subject of Shidduchim, I just will say one more thing, which is that something that I've been thinking about, which is that it's, this is one of the areas in life where it's really easy to get too spiritual, I think. Like a person has to, I think, regularly go back to this very basic question. Do I enjoy spending time with this person? And that it can be as unmystical and as simple as that, you know? So I think that that's something everyone should keep in mind because it's somehow there's a, you know, you're, it's such an exalted event in a person's life that you, you want to do the right thing and everything like that. But, but when everything boils down, like, I'll tell you this story. This is a crazy story. Um, I know these people, so I, I, I know this to be true. I know someone who... Um, he, he met a girl who had his exact same birthday and they got married and their first child was on both of their birthdays and they got divorced <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so I told that story to someone recently and they said why did you have to tell the last part of it I'm like no that is the point of the story you know so Signs, signs are, they're, they're, they're nice, they're nice, but here's the best sign. Do you enjoy spending time with a person? And that's so unmystical and, 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 and wonderfully unmystical, you know?